morning, everyone. Remember that song, Hold That Thought, He Will Hold Me Fast. We're going to see something about that in the passage this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are visiting. It's so cool to hear the kids sing. I was sitting there thinking this morning as they sang in the first service, He died for my sins and I'll praise the Lord. They might not fully understand that now, but I remember reading a biography. By the way, it's very inspiring to read Christian biographies. If you've never read a Christian biography, I really encourage those of you who are new converts it's really inspiring, but the founder of the Navigators, his name is Dawson Trotman, and his biography is called Dawes, D-A-W-S, but as a child, his parents had him memorize a bunch of scriptures, and they didn't mean anything to him, but they were deep in his heart, and he tells a story of as a teenager, one day he was just walking down the street, and those scriptures came flooding back into his mind, and he was gloriously converted and God used that man to start an international ministry on college campuses and military all over the world. It's called The Navigator. So every song and every scripture as these little ones, uh, the little girl who quoted from Romans chapter 8, just think how the word of God in the hearts of children will come back and prayerfully bear fruit, which we're big in investing in our kids. So I want to remind you, the two next things that we want to uh, try to focus on is we have an Easter celebration and vacation Bible school. So you'll notice on your current there's a volunteer meeting coming up on March 10th so if you might feel led we have hundreds of children that are coming and it's a long-term investment to to plant seeds and we're so thankful for all our young couples who are trying to raise their children for Christ we also have a baptism coming up on March 31st and I'll talk about that in a few moments but at this time I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis and we're going to turn to chapter 47 if you don't have a Bible that's okay we have extra Bibles, so feel free to raise your hand, or if you need to borrow one. I didn't grow up in a church where we read from the Bible, so this might be new for some of you, but we're going through the story of the Bible. We read the Bible verse by verse, and the big story of the Bible is basically this, that God is our creator. Even though there's a lot of people who don't believe that, the Bible says that in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and there's an awful lot of evidence in the universe, clues for an intelligent, powerful designer. But what we learn from Scripture is that man who was created in this perfect community and environment was ruined by the fall. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they became corrupted. They were condemned, and the earth was cursed. And so early on in the story, the Bible says God saw the thoughts of men's heart were evil continually. And if we're honest, and if we take a deep look within, we'd go, yeah, I see a lot of stuff in there that I'm not proud of. But God in his plan, even before he created this drama stage of redemption on planet earth he planned to call out of this planet full of people a people for himself that he would redeem from the fall this covenant community that started way back in genesis when he when he said to abraham from your seed all the nations will be blessed and you will become a great multitude of nations and so the book of genesis introduces us to this grand story of god building a community that will will come back one day into an everlasting kingdom when this ransomed, ruined fall will be restored and many of you and, 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 and people all over the world will be in that kingdom and many won't. And so the place where we are in the story is the third forefather patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we saw last week that Jacob has now been restored with his son Joseph, who's now the prime minister of Egypt. And we're in chapter 47 and if you'll begin with me in verse 13, what we're going to see in 13 through 26 is basically as, as, as the, con, 
the, the people continue to go through this poverty and famine that, that God had predicted would last seven years. They run out of money. So, so now we're out of food. Now what? Well, sell us your livestock, okay? Bought food for a year. Now we're out of livestock, okay? Give me your land, okay? We're out of land, okay? Become our servants. Now, the interesting thing is the Egyptians never looked at this as Pharaoh or Joseph exploiting them. They were grateful. They considered Joseph a savior because they would have died. If he hadn't had the foresight to store up all this food, they would have died. And they certainly also, many of them knew about this promise, that seven years of famine. They could have stored their own food, but they didn't. And so we won't take the time to read all of that, but go with me to verse 25. It says, so they said, you've saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt valid to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. But now the story takes a turn. Joseph is about to watch his father Jacob die. When he was 17 years old, he was taken away from his father. His father has now been in the land for 17 years, ironically, and Jacob's about to die. And, and think about in our culture when an older person begins to, to, to realize that they're headed towards the grave. They start thinking about their loved ones. They start thinking about inheritance. They start thinking about blessings. They want to be surrounded by their family. And there were, there were things that went on in this culture that are really important to understand. But we're going to see primarily Jacob's faith as he calls Joseph to himself. In the end of this chapter, he's going to make a big deal about saying, don't bury me in Egypt. And I can't tell you how many times I talk to someone who works in a funeral home. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, I don't care what you do with me after I die. Throw me in a box. Toss me in a river. Just burn me up. But we want to ask ourselves, why was he so preoccupied with where he was buried? So begin with me in verse 27. It says, now Israel lived in the land of Egypt. Now remember, that's Jacob. He had changed his name to God had changed his name to Israel. We'll talk about that in, in a moment. In Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. So they were living in the premier country in the world, the only place of wealth and affluence, the only place left in this area. And yet Jacob could care less about all of this affluence. He could care less about Joseph and a palace. It says he lived 17 years and the length of his life was 147 years. And for reasons known only to God, we know nothing about those 17 years. I mean, imagine at 17 years, you're torn away from your father. His father thought he'd never see him again. Joseph thought he'd never see his father again. And years later, to be reunited with your son for 17 years. It's remarkable to think about the conversations, the laughter, the tears, the things that they would have shared. But as these 17 years came to an end, look at verse 29. It says, when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph. And he said to him, please, my son, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Now, one of the things that, that we have a passion here at uh, Riverstone is to teach you how to read the Bible. If, if you want to learn how to read the Bible, I want to encourage you to come out on Tuesday nights. Pastor John is teaching us through the book of Micah. It's about 50 or 60 people coming. 
That's not the only way, but it's another way if you're not connected yet. But there's a number of things we teach you, like reading it in the context. But another thing we have to learn is historical background. There's something going on here that would make no sense in our culture. In fact, frankly, if a man sat next to me and said, place your hand under my thigh, I would not do that. In fact, I wouldn't have anything kind to say to him. But this was a cultural thing. This was a means by which they took a vow. And we don't know for sure why, but in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham did the same thing. When he wanted to find a wife for his son Isaac, he said to his servant, place your hand under my thigh. Many have actually felt that it was, it was to put your hand near to the genitals, the place of fruition, or the place that God would curse if you didn't keep your vow. And we say, that's so weird, but we have weird things. Imagine if you weren't from around here and you heard children say, cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye? That's crazy. Who would stick a needle in someone's eye? So, so what we have here is a formal covenant and he says, I want you to promise me that you will not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Okay, he gave him his word, right? Is my word not good enough? And he says, swear to me. And you see, in that culture, a solemn oath sworn was irrevocable. He said, swear to me with a covenant, make an oath. So he swore to him. Now, I want you to think about why he did that. Not for a moment do I think that he didn't trust his son's word. Yeah, I don't know whether you're going to do it. You might change your mind. It might be too expensive. I think he did it for this reason. When it came time to bury his father, the Egyptians would have expected that Jacob would have wanted to be buried in Egypt. This was the place to be. It would have been a social insult to say, hey, you know, nothing personal but my, my dad, didn't, you know, he, he doesn't really like it here. He wants to be buried back in his homeland. And so later on, when, because, because Jacob knows this is no small thing to ask Pharaoh to, to allow me to leave this land and take my father back. When we read in chapter 50 that, that Joseph appealed to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, go ahead and bury your father since you swore to him. So, so he appealed to this oath, right? Now we want to stop and ask, Big deal. Who cares where you're buried? You're not going to be there. But I want you to think about what they thought about. Number one, that ought to tell you that these guys must have believed in a life to come. Because if there's nothing after death, then this is a big waste. But what we learn is that in the Old Testament, the saints didn't have near the understanding that we do. But they understood that there was a God who was calling out a community of people. And he had promised them a piece of land. And that land was going to be theirs forever. And if it was theirs forever, then somehow they were going to live forever. And so lay my bones in that land so that when God does what he's going to do, I want to be there when the saints come marching in. And so this was a great act of faith. And this passage is quoted in the book of Hebrews. Don't miss this in verse 31. When his son swore to him, it says, Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. He was a sickly old man. But when he believed that his son would bury him back in the promised land, he offered up worship and praise to God. At this point, though, the next thing that he needed to do was to formally adopt his two grandsons. Now, I'm going to suggest in this passage that he had already told Joseph, I'm going to adopt your two sons. But they had a formal way of doing that. You can't just walk up to somebody and say, I adopt you. Even in our culture, there's ceremonies, there's paperwork. 
So let's read in chapter 48, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. You know what's interesting? Just a side note. This is the first time in the Bible anyone who was ever were, were told got sick. See, it was never God's design for us to get sick. That's part of the curse. When God first made Adam and Eve, he made them very good. And hallelujah, there's going to come a day when there's no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness because Jesus has taken it all away on the cross. Not in this world, but in the kingdom to come. But as he anticipated his death and, and, and Joseph knowing that his father had promised to adopt his two sons, it says, so he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Now I learned something really interesting this week. As often as I've read this passage when it says, and he had the little lads on his knees and he came and took them off his knees, I'm picturing these as a couple of little toddlers. But I learned this week that these two men were probably 20 years old, 18 and 20 years old. These aren't little infants in, in pampers. But he brings these two young men, his two sons. In verse 2, it says, When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Now, verse 3 is really important. It says, Then Jacob had said to Joseph, or, or said to Joseph, in Hebrew, the verbs have a very ambiguous translation. It could very well, and I think in this case, and it fits, should be translated here, Jacob had said to Joseph. I think what we're going to find here is that this is what Jacob had already told Joseph. I'm going to adopt your sons. But the ceremony was about to begin. So let's read it in that light. Then Jacob had said to Joseph, and it could be translated, now Jacob had said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. Now the name God Almighty is an interesting word. That's the name that's used most for God in the book of Genesis. It's the Hebrew name El Shaddai. You remember Amy Grant's song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. So this name has often been translated Almighty God, but... We really don't know for sure exactly what it meant. It might be the God who nourishes and provides. But El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. But I want you to remember that the first time he appeared to him, if you remember, it was in a dream. Remember, he laid down his head, <clears throat> and the angels of God were ascending on a ladder, and he woke up and he said, this is none other than the house of God. God in his sovereign grace had opened his eyes to see God. And you remember as well that Jacob at one point had literally wrestled with God. He strove with God and God changed his name to Israel. And so he thinks back on his encounter with God. He's telling his son his testimony. And you, parents, should tell your children your testimony. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. You don't have to be embarrassed if you don't have this telling moment in time, glorious salvation. Not everybody even knows when they're saved. You just need to know that you're saved and that Christ is your Lord and Savior. And so he, he tells them of his experience with God. He said, he appeared to me and he blessed me. <clears throat> and he said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous and I will make you a company of peoples. Now this is what really struck me. Frequently when God was passing on this blessing to Abraham, he said, many nations will proceed from you. But he said that about Ishmael as well. But this particular word translated a company, a multitude. 
is actually a word that can be translated an assembly. And I think that what God is saying here is that I am calling to myself one singular community of people. This isn't just like, hey man, you're going to have some Ishmaelites and some Canaanites and some Jews and Gentiles. No, this is, this is my forever family. He says, I will make you a company, a multitude, a congregation. And this is a theme that runs through the Bible that as God looks down on planet earth, this ruined community of rebels all in hostility against God, living in disobedience and disregard for God, religious sinners and irreligious, in his mercy and grace, God sent Jesus to die and he's calling people to himself. And I hope by God's sovereign mercies that you're one of them. And if you're not sure, you should be wondering and wanting to be one of those. When Jesus was on earth, he, he put this same idea forward. He said, I have many other sheep that are not of this fold and I must go and find them that we all may be one. And God is still in the process of gathering together this company of people. But notice, it's not for a little while, it's for an everlasting possession. Somebody once said it this way, God's building a forever family. And that forever family is not going to be floating around in heaven. They're going to be on soil. He said, I will give this land to you. And I want you to understand this, people of God, that we're not going to float around in heaven. There's a coming new heaven and new earth in which all of those that God brings to himself will worship and live and serve with him forever in this kingdom. And everyone who's not in stinks to be you. And that's not God's will that any should perish, but that all would come to his son. And so in light of this promise of this community in this everlasting kingdom, Jacob says, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Boy, this verse excites me. You see, some of you may know this, but my, my son-in-law, my daughter Bethany's husband, was laid off about six months ago. He still hasn't found work, and, and he's not alone. There are a number of people right now who are out of work. We need to be praying for them. But I begged the Lord four years ago. I said, God, please bring them to my side. I want to raise those babies on my knee. I want to pour Deuteronomy 6 into them. And they live three houses away from me. And, 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 now, and now as Tim searches and searches for a job, I beg you to join with me in praying for him that they could stay nearby. But he said to me yesterday, he said, Pop, he said, we may have to move. And I said, well, you need to come to church tomorrow because I'm going to pull a Jacob if I have to. <laughs> Don't make me do this. But don't make me take these grandkids. But if I have to. Now, I want you to think about this. He says, these boys are mine. And he's going to elevate these boys to the status of firstborn. He's going to give them very special blessing, inheritance, primacy. They're not the firstborn, but in God's sovereignty, they'll be elevated. Through Joseph's two sons, they will be the pinnacle of blessing. But he says in verse 6, your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. And then Jacob reminds Joseph of his precious mother, Joseph's mother, Rachel. Remember, Rachel only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. He says, as for me, when I came from Padam, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey. Remember, he had gone away for 20 years to work under Laban, and God said, now it's time to go back. And he brought his precious 
multitude of children with him, his wives and children, as he went back to the promised land. One of my favorite verses, Genesis 32. As God brought him back into the land, he said, Lord, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've showed to me. For I went out but nothing but this staff, and now I return with two companies. And so as he rehearsed that time of his precious wife dying as she gave birth, he says, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, of which later he's going to say, and I want to be buried by her side. Verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And again, this is why we have to study the Bible carefully. The first time I read that, I'm like, what? These are your grandsons. What do you mean, who are they? Well, there's two things to understand. Number one, I never knew this. If you go back a couple chapters, he had 62 grandsons. But I don't think that's it. I think what we have going on here is a formal adoption ceremony, okay, in which they, they had certain statements that they made, certain confirmations, affirmations verbally, and even a rite in which the children would come to the knees of the adopting parent. So one targum, a, a translation, a Syriac translation, when Israel saw his sons, he said, who are these? Literally, they added the words, who are these to you? And you go, why would you do that? And I go, well, why do we do this? If you've ever been to certain Christian baptisms, we don't baptize infants here because we don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But if you've been to a baptism of infants, they said, what name is given to this child? The parents don't go, oh, no. Well, why do they say that then? Because it's part of the ceremony. When I do a wedding, when, 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 the, when the father brings his precious daughter down the aisle and I say, who gives this woman? He, goes, he doesn't go, I don't know. Why do you have to say that? Because it's part of the ceremony. And so this is a formal adoption ceremony in which he verbally says, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons. That was his response. And we actually have a manuscript from the Akkadian culture in which a grandfather adopted his children. But notice he says, they are my sons whom God has given me. Don't ever forget that in our culture of hustle and bustle and biomedicine and all this stuff, every child that ever comes to this planet is a gift from God. Don't ever let anybody say, oh, what happened? You're having another one? And every child that you have, it wasn't because of anything you did. These are my sons that God has given me. And there are many, many people who would give their right arm to have a child. And so I want to encourage you, and you'll hear me say this all the time, value children. And I unashamedly say, have a bunch of them. And I know that goes against culture. People, oh, we can't afford it. I go, what can't you afford? To take them to Disney every year? To pay their way to Harvard? Children are a gift from the Lord. And to, to raise them for Christ and to know that our God shall provide. But remember that in those days when they're driving you crazy, especially you mothers. My heart is with you. I heard somebody say the other day, does your wife work? She's home with those kids. You, you know, let me get an amen from the sisters. Cleaning and scrubbing can wait <coughs> till tomorrow for children grow up. I've learned to my sorrow. So quiet down, cobwebs, and dust go to sleep because I'm rocking my babies, and babies don't keep. And we all know this, fellas. You may work from sun to sun, but mama's work is never done. And so we value mothers and parenting and raising kids for Christ here. But Joseph says, these are my sons that God has given me. And so Jacob says, bring them to me that I may bless them. This is the formal ceremony. Now again, something confusing. Now the eyes of Israel were dim from age that he could not see. But wait, look at verse 8. 
It says, when Israel saw Joseph's sons. See, the Bible contradicts itself. You can't believe a word in here. Two verses apart. He saw his sons. He couldn't see. I'm throwing my Bible away. You heard me say last week I talked to an intelligent doctor, an obstetrician, obstetrician. See, I'm not intelligent like her. She says, oh, I don't believe the Bible. It's full of contradictions. I said, give me one. She said, I don't know any. How sad, silly, a contradiction. We've all seen that with old people. When we say that we can't, they can't see, we don't mean that they're stone cold in darkness. They got cataracts. They're old. They can barely see, right? And so sometimes we say they can see, but they can't see. And we don't even want to go to the hearing part, right? So, of course, he could see them to a certain extent. But then Joseph brought them close to him. Now, these aren't little babies. These are adult young men. And then it says, and he kissed them and embraced them. And you're like, oh, I love doing that with my grandkids. And you all still are at your therapist because your grandmom's perfume, right? They're like, ah, you're like, my grandmom's licking me again. And you're like, I just, no, this was a formal ceremony. We know from the Code of Hammurabi that this was part of the, the ceremony that the, the adopting father would kiss and embrace the children. And this is precious. And, and frankly, I, I wish Americans were more emotive and especially white people. I don't know why it is, but if we don't change, we're going to go up first in the rapture because the dead in Christ will rise first. We are humans with bodies who can lift our hands. We can wail when we mourn. We can worship with joy and we can love with affections and embracing. My dear old aunt used to write me a letter and she'd sign it fondly. I'm going, come on, give me some more than fondly. Give me a hug, sister. And I know some of you are like, that makes me creepy. But we're humans with affections and emotions. And so as he, as he wept over these precious children, kissing and embracing these young men, he's adopting them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. The ceremony is over. Then Joseph took them from his knees. Now again, literally it's took them with from with his knees, so it's not like little baby sitting on his knee. But you know what? As Joseph watched this, Joseph was the second most powerful man on the planet. He had access to all the money in the world, but he would rather that these two little boys would be blessed by this dear man of God than have all the treasures of the world. So what did he do when it was over? He bowed to the ground and he worshiped. You see, I hope you're picking up a pattern here. What did Jacob do when he finally was sure he was going to be buried in the promised land? He bowed to the ground and he worshiped. That's what we do. That's what believers do. We see the hand of God in our lives and we bow and we worship. We give God praise as we see him leading us. And after he worshiped, now it's time for the blessing. Now it's time for the patriarch to pronounce over his children blessings that were irrevocable. These aren't just words of affection. These are vows and promises and pledges that God had empowered Jacob to distribute. It's interesting. God appeared personally to Abraham and blessed him. He appeared personally to Isaac and blessed him. He appeared personally to Jacob and blessed him. But to Joseph, he was going to do it through the mediator of his father. And so it's now for the blessing to be passed on to Joseph through these boys. And so it's time to stage the adoption and the blessings. The, the, the ceremony's over. Now, the firstborn gets to get the right-hand blessing. 
You see, in the Bible, the right hand is a place of authority and power. If your name Benjamin, literally in Hebrew, that's son of my right arm, Ben Yamin, son of my strength. And so your right hand would go on the firstborn because he would get the double portion. He would get the, 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 the priority. And so Joseph sets it up and he brings Manasseh, the firstborn, for, for Jacob to lay his hands on Manasseh and Ephraim and bless them. But verse 14 says, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. Now, there's such a thing as zeal without knowledge, and I love the fact that people want to find Christ as often as they can in the Bible, and that's beautiful. But there are times I think we need to caution ourselves against excess because some people actually will say and preach and say, it was actually the cross. That's why he crossed his arm, to show us the cross of Jesus. And I think we might be reading too much into it there. I don't think that's true, as beautiful as the cross is, as often as we want to talk about it. But what we see here is the sovereign grace of God orchestrated by Jacob. He did this on purpose. Now, in order not to interrupt the blessing, the author, through the Holy Spirit, Moses, determines that he's going to tell us something that happened right then. When, when, when Jacob went like this, Joseph jumped in, but, but he doesn't want to interrupt it and, and, and interrupt the blessing, but we're going to interrupt it because I want you to see how Joseph responded because Joseph would not have waited till after Jacob did the blessing because once it's done, it's done. Remember when Jacob was familiar with this, right? Remember when he tricked his dad to get the blessing. Once it was said, it was said. So he jumped in right away. Go down to verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. Literally, it says it was evil in his sight. He grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father. This one is the firstborn. Place your right hand. This is Manasseh. Put it right here. And I, th this phrase is ringing in my head. I, I, I've read it over and over again this week. I've been listening to these chapters over and over again. This phrase in verse 19. But his father refused and he said, I know, my son. I know. And I keep hearing that in my head. I know, my son. I know. And I wonder if there are times that that like Joseph, we're going, God, that no way, wait, that. And God's looking down and saying, I know my daughter. I know my son. I know. I know what I'm doing. What this is, I know. Now, how did he know? Because God is sovereign and God must have revealed to him. He said, he shall become a people. He shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Now you go, now wait a minute. Why would the younger be greater than... You've been here? Why did Cain... Abel? Wait, why did... Isaac over Ishmael... He, why, why would Jacob over Esau? We keep the, 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 why was Perez over Zerah? Why, why is Ephraim over Manasseh? 
I think God's saying this to us. Because in my sovereign grace, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And he frequently takes the ones that are the little guy. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, consider your calling, you Corinthians, who want to be so important and powerful and rich and influential. He said, there aren't many of, of you who are mighty and noble and rich and wealthy. He said, look around because God has chosen the poor of this world. God has chosen the despised. God has chosen the foolish. And he did it intentionally that no flesh shall boast in his in his presence. I don't expect there to be a revival in Hollywood. I don't expect there to be a revival among all the, the movers and shakers on planet earth because God is in the business of bringing glory to himself. And I'm so grateful that God brought me one of those fools. I'm happy to be a fool for Jesus and to be saved by his grace. And I'm also thankful that he said not many, but he didn't say not any. So whether he wants to save Donald Trump or the prince of the Sudanese or whatever, may the, the grace of God spread to the whole world. Now, as this takes place, look at this blessing. I love this. I, Benjamin, you weren't here, but I said, Benjamin, you got to write a song on this. Verse 15, it says, he blessed Joseph. Now notice, he blessed Joseph. Wait, I thought he was blessing boys. Well, he is, but jo Joseph's getting blessed through these boys. He blessed Joseph and he said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. And I want to start with that. Listen, if you're a Christian, it's not about this hour on Sunday. You and I walk before God all week long. And we have the privilege of walking with God. This is what believers do. We walk with God. We walk with God when we're with people. We walk with God when we're in private. We walk with God when we're in public. We walk before God. Our lives are oriented. Our eyes are fixed. And we lift our eyes up from whence come our help. And we set our affections on Christ. And we have this precious example for us in the lives of Abraham and Isaac. But then, here you go, Benjamin. Here's, here, you get a song for us. He says, the God who has been the shepherd all my life to this day. Wow. That's, that's incredible to vision God from the, from the moment you were born. He has shepherded you. You're like, well, I wasn't saved then. I'm not John the Baptist, you know. He's the only one that got saved from the womb. If you're a child of God, he kept you from dying. He kept Satan from dragging you into the depths of hell. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he sent his angels to be ministering spirits to minister to those who will inherit salvation. And you can look back in your past and say, well, if he was shepherding me, he did a lousy job because I was abused. You're here, aren't you? You're still alive. And I don't want to make light of the tremendous pain of abuse. But I can tell you this, there's another world. And every moment that you have to spend with Jesus for eternity, your sorrows will be long gone. And I love to think about that. Think as you go home, God, you're my shepherd. What do shepherds do? They protect me. They feed me. They watch over me. They comfort me. They discipline me. They correct me. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our good shepherd, he gave his life for us. I can get excited about having a God for my shepherd all the days of my life. And he's not going to say, I've had enough going after that one. We just sang it. He will hold me fast. Jesus said, Father, of all whom you've given me, all of his sheep, who no one shall pluck from his hand, he said, I have lost none of them. Hallelujah. 
You're a child of God. He that began a good work in you. He took you to himself and he'll shepherd you by hook or by crook. Even if he wants to take you home and crown you, if he has to, he'll crown me and take me home. But he'll keep us because those whom he called, he justified and those whom he justified, he glorified. But not only is he our shepherd, look at the next verse. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Wait, what? There's two of them? Well, there's one of them. But yeah, there's two of them. There's one God, but there's this angel. What, what do you mean the angel? This is none other, folks, than the Lord Jesus. When you read about an angel, an angel, an angel, that's an angel. But when you read about the angel, the angel, the angel, that's the Lord Jesus. He's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And this is none other than a reference. Now, I don't know that Jacob fully understood, oh, this is the second person of the triune God, but he understood that there was this mediator who was divine, and he met him face to face when he wrestled him. He said, I have seen God face to face. And so he, and what did this angel do? He said, this angel redeemed me from all evil. I praise God for that. Jesus Christ redeemed us. He bought us. This whole idea of a redeeming mediator, that didn't start with Jesus. It was planned for Jesus, but the Passover, as they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, he redeemed me from all evil. And, and think about that. Think of his protection and his preservation. I can hardly restrain my flesh with prayer and, and self-control. Think about what it would be like if Jesus wasn't praying for us. As he sits in heaven, he prays for our holiness. He prays that God will keep us from the evil one. He prays that God, my Father, I want you to sanctify them in the truth that our spirit, soul, and body will be kept from evil. Every day when I wake up, if I have any affections or interest in Christ, it's because I have an angel who's redeeming me from evil. Don't ever forget that. The Lord is always having our holiness as his best interest. And why would I want to fight against that instead of gladly obeying God and working out my salvation with fear and trembling? Because he's at work in me. He's at work in me to will and work of his good pleasure. He said, may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, we already saw that earlier he expressed his displeasure, but go down to verse 20. And he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel shall pronounce blessing, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And if you continue to read the Bible, you, you, you begin to realize that, wow, Ephraim's the man. Ephraim's the top dog. In fact, when the, when the, when the nation had a division it, later on in the scriptures when they were no longer one nation under God, but they were two nations under God, they called the entire ten-tribe northern kingdom Ephraim because as God unfolded this promise to Ephraim, as you watch when they come out of Egypt 40 years, the tribe of Reuben, the real firstborn, decreased and the tribe of Ephraim multiplied and, and was blessed by God. And so they became the pinnacle. May God make you like Ephraim. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you, and he will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Now I want you to think about that. That's us. By burial or by rapture, God is going to bring us to the presence of Jesus and put us in his kingdom. And we need to have that same faith and resolve. Jacob could care less about the pleasures of Egypt and the riches of Egypt. He had one goal in mind. 
bury me in that land with the people of God because God is going to bring us back. And then as a special gift, he said, I'll give you one more portion. It's a very interesting word. It's literally the word shoulder. I'll give you one more shoulder. Some translations say a ridge, more than your brother's. He actually gives them Shechem. Now, Shechem was, was, a, was a, a place you can look up in your Bible map and see where is Shechem, but that's where Abraham had bought that, that little plot of land to bury Sarah. But what's interesting about Shechem is they only bought like a little plot, maybe I think it was 20 acres. But eventually, they took all of Shechem. And you go, well, how did that happen? He says, well, I took it from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, at first you're like, oh, well, there must, must have been, you know, a little... Robin Hood battle, and he's like, we win, that's all right. Probably not, because actually, we know how they got Shechem. His brutal, bloodthirsty, angry, bitter sons, Simeon and Levi, because their sister was raped by a Shechemite, they went and tricked all the men, remember, into getting circumcised, and then when they couldn't fight, they went and slaughtered them in their rage and anger and bitterness of which we're going to see in chapter 50 that Jacob says, Simeon and, and, and Levi are men of anger. They lost out on blessings. But yet in the sovereign purposes of God, even though that's how he became in control of Shechem, he was still able to see the hand of God in saying, I took it from the hand of the Amorite. You see, Jacob lived with his eyes toward God. He lived before the Lord. He lived in light of his promises. So, so every time we read these passages, it just excites me to think about, hey, this, this, we're not that far off from what they went through. You see, what I want you to take home with you is to understand that God has been for a long time building an everlasting community, a forever family. And that community is looking forward to an everlasting kingdom in the presence of of an everlasting shepherd and angel, the glorious king, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really fascinating because in the Old Testament, they had something that we don't always realize. When God kept saying, I'm going to give you this land from the Mediterranean to the Jordan, and we think they were going to get this little piece of earth, as the Bible unfolded, what we began to see is that it wasn't going to be a little piece of earth. It was going to be the whole round globe. In fact, when Paul looks at this very promise of the land in Romans chapter 4 he says God promised Abraham that he would inherit the entire earth you say well where did he get that from I want you to turn as we close to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 because I want to press home a very practical application you see as the Bible unfolded in the progress of revelation people began to understand that there's a coming kingdom a coming heavenly city that's coming to earth that God was going to give to all of those who came to him and walked before him, an everlasting kingdom, that we were going to be, be, be before God in this everlasting kingdom. And so when Jesus taught the Beatitudes, and he said, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The New Testament unfolds for us this great hope that Jesus is going to give to us an everlasting kingdom. And with all of the people of God through history, this covenant community, we're going to sing and serve and worship the living God, and I don't want you to be left behind. And so look with me in Hebrews chapter 11 as the author of Hebrews keeps telling us how our fathers of the past looked forward by faith to this coming kingdom. Read with me in, 
in verse 21, it says, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave order concerning his bones. What were they talking about? We'll go back a couple verses. You see, the author tells us what they were talking about in verse 13. They all died in faith. They didn't get to see this heavenly land come to earth. They, they, they didn't see it, but they welcomed these promises. And now listen, this is important. But everyone who believes that there's a coming kingdom of God, look what it says, they confess that they are strangers and exiles on this earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. Folks, there's no third option. You can have this life, this world, and live for yourself, or you could turn your back on this life, this evil generation in which we live. You can pull up your tent pegs and say, I'm not living anymore for this world. I'm living for the life to come. And by faith come hell or high waters. If I have to die, I'm going to live for Jesus. And I'm not going to do it secret service. Look what it says. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they could have returned. But verse 16, and this is true of every believer who's part of God's community. It says they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Now notice there, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you hear the Lord speaking right now? He's saying, you with me? Is he calling you and saying, I'll adopt you, but you can't have both. You say, ah, I don't know, what will people think of me? And, you know, I might have to change. What do I have to give up? And you hear Jesus say, come to me. Come to me. Come as you are. And I invite you this morning to remember that God is forming an everlasting community. And you don't do it solo. You don't go, yeah, well, just me and Jesus. You become part of a community, and today it's called a local church. And you get baptized, and you get involved, and you serve, and you're held accountable, and you become part of that community. Do you hear the Lord calling you today? And maybe you got one foot in the world and one on the fence. And maybe this morning the Lord's saying, this is the day that I call you to myself. So as we go home today, I want you to think about this. True believers, like Joseph, like Jacob, we live lives of worship. We live lives of faith. We live lives that say, hey, it's, it's not in this world that we have to have all the fulfillment. It's the life to come because we're looking for that city when the new Jerusalem comes to earth and the Lord Jesus appears. And he's going to either say, you're in or you're out. And it's not because of anything you do. It's because of what he did on the cross. Stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, may the great Lord Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, the angel who redeemed us from all evil, may he guide us and our children and grandchildren as we pray on our knees safely into his heavenly kingdom. We join Jacob and Joseph and Abraham and Isaac before the Lord. As your children, we worship you together today in community and we say lord jesus come quickly in jesus name we pray amen god bless you have a wonderful day